Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. I hope on your way in you picked up a sermon outline. You'll find those in the back. Uh, We're looking at, or continuing in this series on the Sermon on the Mount. And um, I hope the sermon outline doesn't put you off with seven points, um, but we will get through them uh, quickly. Uh, I can assure you of that. Our reading is Matthew chapter 5, and it's verses 38 to 42. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Amen. May God bless us the reading of his word. Well, I want you to imagine uh, you're driving from Bloomington to Nashville. And as you know, this route, there's lots of curves. It's hard to make much headway when there's lots of traffic. But up behind you comes this speed demon. He overtakes you, but he misjudges the speed of the, uh, the, with on the, the, the approaching car. And so, as he quit, so he has to quickly pull into your lane, forcing you to brake hard to stop you from having a collision. You blast the horn to make him aware of your presence as he speeds off. But this speed demon doesn't make much progress because there's traffic ahead, and so you catch up with him. And you have been stewing about how dangerous a driver that this guy is, how he could have have harmed you, how he needs to be taught a lesson. And so you drive up close behind him, so he's now aware of you being right behind him. The road splits into two lanes, and so you come up alongside him, You give him the scowling look, you shake your head, you make sure that he knows how unhappy that you are. Does it make a difference? Probably not, but it makes you feel good. And you've shown him who is boss. Well, our passage today is about revenge. Revenge is something that we are all inclined to. Now, I know all of you, you're kind and sweet people, But even within you, there is a desire for revenge, to get even, to teach someone a lesson when you've been wronged. And so I want you to notice you're not to seek personal revenge, but rather you are to do good to those who seek to harm you. And this you can do in Christ, for he did not show revenge to you, but showed his forgiveness. And children, I encourage you to draw a picture I draw a picture of you with your siblings, and rather than seek revenge for some harm they've done to you, maybe pulling your hair, as we were hearing about this morning, I want you to draw a picture of you showing them forgiveness. So firstly, you are to live righteously in this world. So we're continuing in this study of the six examples where your righteousness is to exceed that of the Pharisees. And unlike the Pharisees who sought to put limits on God's law with their interpretations, we've been seeing how Jesus widens the application of God's law so that murder includes angry thoughts, 
Adultery includes lustful thoughts. Divorce is not acceptable just because you give a certificate. Instead, you are to be committed to being faithful in your marriage. You do not need to resort to making an oath in your speech, for your speech should already have integrity. And today we'll consider this area of revenge, and revenge is something that we all struggle with. Now, with my sermon last week, Heather told me that after me saying that you're all liars, she was glad to get to the end of the sermon when I was able to say, you can be honest. Well, the same is true for revenge, for a low revenge is an issue for us all. We can live without seeking vengeance. And this is what Jesus is doing on the Sermon on the Mount. He's giving us the values of the kingdom. He's showing us what his kingdom looks like. It's when his disciples are honest, when they're not full of anger or lust, remaining faithful in their marriages, and not seeking revenge when harm has been done in some way. This is what you are to demonstrate in your kingdom living in the here and now. And this demonstration is powerful because it's not natural. What is natural is what we see with the Pharisees. But their attempt at righteous living, it fell far short of the standards of the Old Testament. And so Jesus exposes them for not having a true righteousness. He demonstrated how they actually lowered the standards of righteousness in the Old Testament by their interpretations. And they trusted in their ingenuity to be able to say they are righteous in their ability to keep the traditions that they've made. Well, Jesus wants his disciples to demonstrate true righteousness. Well, that's impossible. That's not natural. Your attempts at trying to keep the Sermon on the Mount are doomed to failure. And that's because the Sermon on the Mount is not the way into the kingdom. Remember, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He is speaking to those who are already trusting in him. For trusting in Jesus is saying, I don't have a righteousness of my own. I am hungering and thirsting for your righteousness, a righteousness that is found only in Christ. In him am I righteous. And so in him I am able then to live the righteous life. In him I am able to fulfill the Sermon on the Mount. I can live this kingdom lifestyle with its values because of Christ. And that includes this area of revenge. Our natural desire is to get our own back. Well, Jesus revolutionizes that with this demand, with his demand for a radical righteousness. And as a result, it has a huge impact on those around us. So secondly, you are to understand the application of the law, whether it's at a personal level or a societal level. So we've been noticing this as previous weeks, how the Pharisees, they take teaching from the Old Testament, but then they misinterpret it. They look for a loophole. They misapply God's word. And they do the same in this passage too. So Jesus is quoting from their teaching when he says, you've heard that it was said, rather than saying it is written, which would come from God's word. Now the Pharisees' teaching does come from the Old Testament, And we can read of that in Exodus 21. If men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, 
yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished accordingly as the woman's husband imposes on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, and stripe for stripe. And this phrase, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, is repeated again in Leviticus and also in Deuteronomy. It seems simple. If someone wrongs you, then it's right for you to harm them in the same way. But it's not that simple. What the law is teaching is not a provision for personal revenge. We read here of judges being involved. And so these instructions are for the leaders of Israel. The leaders of Israel were to establish justice. They would decide the rightful punishment for a particular wrongdoing and the exact compensation to be provided for the victim. Now, it's not that there should be a literal eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but it gave a principle. The punishment must fit the crime. The principle of just retribution still stands today. In Muslim societies where Sharia law is practiced, they have a punishment of cutting off the hand of a thief, a convicted thief. And even if only a loaf of bread is stolen, they still believe you impose this severe punishment. The punishment is clearly not fitting off the crime. And so this instruction from the Old Testament law was given so the leaders would know how they are to respond with justice. And they would not seek a literal retaliation. They saw it as a principle. And so often it was financial damages that would be paid. Only in the case of murder would there be an actual demand that where a life was taken, the one responsible should die as a consequence. The Pharisees, they wrongly believed this law allowed them to take the law into their own hands. They allowed a vindictive spirit to take over. Doriani says, society needs justice, but we do not need to exact justice with our own hands. As individuals, we can entrust justice to God and the state and act in mercy. If someone wrongs you, you do not have the right to respond by taking it into your own hands. No, you are to leave it to the law courts to decide. You're not to seek personal revenge. And the law explicitly says this. We can read of this in Leviticus 19. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. No wonder Jesus responds by saying in verse 39, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. Now, he's not contradicting the principle of eye for an eye, but he rightfully sees the application as different. You're not to resist, meaning you're not to take action. You're not to retaliate. You're not to think that revenge is sweet. This principle is one that continues to stand in our country today. That's why we should be supportive of the justice system, of our police force. For without it, it would only lead to a tit-for-tat, which would quickly escalate to excessive retribution. That's how civil wars start out. Individuals fall out, then families fall out, then tribes fall out, and it leads to a full-scale war. 
to recognize that the law, tooth for tooth, eye for eye, is not to be applied on a personal level, but it is a principle of just retribution at a society level. So thirdly, don't respond to insults, verse 39. So Jesus now gives a number of illustrations of what he means when he says, you are not to resist. And we are to take principles from these illustrations. The first illustration, whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Well, what are we to make of this? Are we to simply give up on all self-defense, become a human punch bag? Tolstoy, the famous Russian novelist, interpreted Jesus' words in this way. And so he no longer saw the need for the police force or the law courts, for when someone wrongs you, you are to continue letting them wrong you. And so he goes to the, the opposite extreme of the Pharisees. No, Jesus is using hyperbole. He's using an overstatement here. Just like he talked about if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. He didn't literally mean that. In a similar way, he's not saying if someone punches you in the right cheek, that let him punch you on your left. Now, I don't have much experience in punching people, but normally you would use your right hand, your right fist, as most people are right-handed, and you would normally hit your opponent then on their left cheek. To hit someone on their right cheek, well, that suggests that it is a backhanded blow. And so this is not a physical attack that Jesus is speaking about. Instead, this is about attacking someone's honor. A slap on the cheek is pouring shame on someone. It's like spitting on someone. It's to mock someone. Jesus is wanting you to endure insult after insult. He is telling you to take it on the chin. You should be willing to lose face for the sake of Christ. Well, what does this look like? Well, in your marriage, when a conflict arises, how much are you wanting to have the last word that you won't let something go? You want to be proven right. In your work, maybe you are mistakenly accused of something. You speak up, but it just simply comes across as really petty. Better to stay silent. Take it on the chin. Maybe in church someone speaks to you about the behavior of your child, and you quickly want to retort by saying, well, your child is no angel either. No, turn the other cheek. Be humble. Listen to what they have to say. That doesn't mean you agree with them, but don't be proud that you refuse to listen. Well, fourthly, you're to do more than you have to in verse 40. If anyone wants to take, sue you and take away your tunic, let him also have your cloak also. So let's understand the culture behind what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying that if you are being sued, most likely for not being able to pay back a debt, the compensation would be your tunic. Now, clothing back in Jesus' day was expensive. There were no mountains of disused clothing like we have today. Most people would only have a couple of pairs of outfits. And so they wore an inner garment, which is a tunic, and then an outer garment, which is the cloak. And the law would, would allow you to take the tunic, but not the cloak. A cloak was what kept someone warm. It was wrong to deny him of that. And we read of this even in Exodus 22. If you ever take your neighbor's garment as a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. 
for that is his only covering. It is his garment for his skin. What will he sleep in? And it will be that when he cries to me, I will hear, for I am gracious. Well, Jesus is saying, give him the cloak as well as the tunic. Again, this is Jesus using hyperbole. He's not literally saying to do this so that you're left cold and naked. But the point is that you're to do more than what is demanded of you. We can be so focused on our legal rights. Here it is, the legal right to keep your cloak. Now, there are times when you should be willing to give up your rights. This is especially seen at work. You're to carry out your duties, fulfill your work responsibilities, but be willing to do even more than that. Yes, you may not be paid for it, but that should not be your attitude. You should not be seeking to get away with the bare minimum. I was at a school assembly recently at Seven Oaks, and Stephen was recounting the opening of the school and how the opening had to be delayed uh, for several weeks because the building was not yet ready. But in delaying the opening, this would have a knock-on effect in that the school term would then have to go later into the following summer. But then for the following academic year, they would have to start on the original schedule, meaning the staff would lose a number of weeks off their vacation. And yet each staff member was willing to make that sacrifice. And Stephen mentioned how impactful this was to the life of the school, that all new members hear, all new staff members hear it, so they understand the willing spirit that's necessary, even at a personal cost. Well, that's the attitude that Jesus is speaking of here. It's not standing on your rights and always being demanding. That's not the way of the kingdom. It's a call to sacrifice, to even be willing to lose for the greater good. Now, remember, this is a principle. You have to work this out for yourself. If you're continually being misused at work, there is a time and place to call it a day to stand for your rights. But in general, the point is, Don't be so focused on your rights. You should be willing to do more than you have to. Well, fifthly, you are to go beyond what you are asked in verse 41. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Now, when we think of going the extra mile, we think of hotels or airlines providing that little bit extra to make you more comfortable. It's doing something special to make someone happy. While that is good, that's not the original meaning of this phrase. Compared to the other examples that are from the Old Testament, this example comes from the Roman world. And it would happen when a Roman soldier would compel a Jewish passerby to help out. They could commandeer their wagon or their cart for military purposes. They may have asked the Jews to perform a service for them, And the Jews would have no choice but to obey in the matter. And you can imagine just how humiliating that would be. It would be a sign that you are an oppressed people. And probably the most famous example of this is Simon of Cyrene being told to carry the cross of Christ. Jesus is saying, when this happens, you're not to stop when you have fulfilled your requirement. You are to go the extra mile. Ferguson writes, no soldier has the right to make you do that. Do it voluntarily. Thus he may see that you have another emperor and belong to another empire. 
with principles that are infinitely stronger than the laws of Rome. So rather than be angry in humiliation, disciples of Christ, you are to do it with joy, for you are serving your king. And this radical righteousness that Christians displayed in the Roman Empire was infectious. It was this witness of being willing to do more than what was asked that caught the attention of the Roman people. We see examples of this from Paul's life. When he was in jail in Philippi, he went the extra mile. He told the jailer, everyone's present. You do not need to kill yourself. Or when he was on board that ship to Rome, again, he went the extra mile. He gave instructions to the Roman centurion and how they all can be rescued. He was imprisoned by these men, and yet he showed a concern for them and for their lives. And they noticed Paul's witness. The jailer even asked, how can he be saved? We often work with the principle of equality in our relationships, even in our marriage, or at work, in our friendships, even here at church. We compare ourselves to others. Well, they only do this, so I will only do that. No, you should do more than your ask. You should go the extra mile and surprise those who ask, and so be a witness to them. Well, sixthly, you are to be generous in your giving. Verse 42. So Jesus' final words are, Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Again, Jesus is speaking with hyperbole. There has to be a limit. We are not to give everything away so that we have nothing, and so we then ourselves become a burden on others. You also have to use wisdom in giving. Sometimes it's not the wisest thing to give money, even if people ask. Give food. Help set them up with a job. Teach them how to cook instead. But we are to always be generous. We've noticed that in Rich's sermons in Ruth. The generosity of the landowners like Boaz, leaving behind some of the harvest so the poor can have it. Early Christian writing, the Didache says, let your donation sweat in your hand. That should be true of you. In your giving, does it hurt? Or is it always comfortable? You are to have a generous heart. That's to be evident in your giving. And so this gives us a beautiful picture of what Christ's kingdom is like. It's not full of pettiness, a returning evil for evil, an unwillingness to do anything because it would be an infringement on your rights. You're not always weighing up what you will do in response to what people can do or will do for you. You're not to be tight-fisted in your giving. And so seventhly, this you can do in Christ. For he did not show revenge, but forgave you. Well, maybe you're thinking, this is just too much. There are just too many imperatives here. If I did this, I would be spent, not just financially, but mentally, emotionally. There is no way that I can do this. But this is what Christ did for you. He did not defend his rights as son of God, as king of his kingdom, no, he turned the other cheek. He gave both his tunic and his cloak when he was shamefully placed naked on the cross. He went the extra mile by coming into this world. 
he gave generously by giving of himself. Jesus did this for you. Even though you are deserving of punishment for your sins, he did not seek revenge for every time that you sinned against him. Instead, he forgave you. He did this to bring you into his kingdom, and so you belong to him. Christ lives in you, and so you can do what he has done. You can turn the other cheek. You can give your cloak as well as your tunic. You can go the extra mile. You can give generously off yourself. And so you don't need to clutch tightly to your rights and to receiving justice. This is contrary to human nature. We're so quick to respond to insult. But no, you must remember that you belong to Christ's kingdom. This is your identity. And so you are to be willing to trust God in whatever it is you're facing. The Apostle Paul seems to be thinking of this passage when he wrote Romans 12. You have this passage in your outline. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is radical righteousness that is to be evident in Christ's kingdom. Scrivener writes, going the extra mile is not about hard work. It's not about bowing to injustices. It's a counter-conditional grace that shocks and wins the world. So this takes great humility. Your focus is not on yourself and on your honor. Instead, your attitude should be one of mercy to even those who cause you evil. Your desire is not to harm them, but to serve them by sharing the gospel with them. And this you can do because of Christ and the forgiveness you know in him. And so you're not to hold people ransom because of their sin against you. You're not to demand justice for the personal insults you have received. Now remember just how much you have been forgiven, so you are ready to forgive others. So you are not to seek personal revenge, but rather do good to those who harm you. And this you can do in Christ, for he did not show revenge to you, but he forgave you. Edith Cavill was a nurse living in Brussels in Belgium during World War I. And after the city was captured and occupied by the Germans in the first month of the war, Cavill chose to remain at her post, tending to German soldiers and Belgians alike. In August 1915, German authorities arrested her, and they accused her of helping British and French prisoners of war to escape Belgium into neutral Holland. And during her trial, Cavill admitted that she was guilty of the offenses with with which she had been charged. And so she was sentenced to death. And the night before her execution on October 12, 1915, Cavill confided to an American chaplain saying, they have all been very kind to me here, but this I would say, standing as I do in view of God and eternity, I realize that patronism is not enough. I must have no hatred 
or bitterness toward anyone. Edith Cabell did not seek personal revenge. She knew the forgiveness that Christ offered her, and she displayed the kingdom in her life and in her death. And so likewise, you're not to seek personal revenge. Rather, you are to do good to those who seek to harm you. And this you can do in Christ, for he did not show revenge to you, but forgive you. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do seek your forgiveness. Often we are filled with thoughts of revenge. We want respect. We want our rights to be recognized. Help us to be willing to lay these aside as we serve you. Remind us of our Lord Jesus Christ, laying aside his rights to serve us at much cost, at the cost of his own life. And so we thank you that in him we have been made new so that we can then show this mercy to others, even when it is costly. And so, Lord, we pray you would give us wisdom in how to do this. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, please turn your psalm book to Psalm 112a. Psalm 112a, this psalm speaks of the blessed man. Uh, one of the characteristics of this man is his righteousness. In the darkness, he is light. He is compassion. He is mercy. Well, this speaks of Christ. And in Christ, it speaks of you and I. This righteousness is the kingdom value that we are to display in this world. So let's stand and sing Psalm 112a. Eh? 